The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this 57th episode, we talk with Carol Reese about the dangers posed by the native purist movement. Before your eyes pop out of your head, take another sip and listen with an open mind. Carol is a retired extension horticulture specialist. She is a nationally known speaker, delightfully blending equal parts garden knowledge, natural lore, and quirky humor. Carol's Ph.D. in horticulture would be hanging right there with her B.S. degree in horticulture and an M.S. degree in horticulture from Mississippi State University if she did just only finish that dissertation. While there, she taught plant materials and landscape design, writer of numerous garden publications, and served as the Q&A columnist for Horticulture magazine. For two decades, she wrote a weekly gardening and nature column for the Jackson Sun. Carol attributes her love for horticulture to being raised on a farm by generations of plant nuts, including their grandfather, who each spring dynamited his garden spot to break up his hard pan. Carol's very personal appreciation of natural lore is at least partially a result of her near-daily ramblings through the wild areas near her home. With her extensive and motley collection of mutts, also known as the strong will breed of amalgamations. Our conversation with Carol Reese coming up. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Carol, why do you hate native plants? Ha, ha, ha. It's funny, I heard that when I was contacted about speaking at a conference. A good friend of mine, actually, on the committee said there were some people who were going to blackball the conference and not come because of you being the speaker. And I said, what in the world? They said, you hate native plants. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I love native plants, but I don't adhere to a native plant purism philosophy. I think it can actually be harmful. In fact, I wish there were a lot more native plants that I really adore using that are kind of hard to come by in the trade. Not anti-native plants. I'm anti-native purism because I think it can have some dangers in the long run. What are those dangers you're seeing with the native purist movement? This idea that they have to be used if you're gardening for wildlife, the whole idea that native insects need native plants to survive simply isn't true. If we say that it has to be native and we require people, and, you know, there are laws now being passed in some places that say it has to be native in these particular new gardens that are going in. Some of those are actually tearing some out that are non-native plants that wildlife has already adjusted to. It sounds so logical. Native insects need native plants. 
of course you're on board with that because we care about our insects because now our birds need to eat those insects on up the food chain everything depends on our insects I fear that by limiting our choices and insisting that it has to be native, we're actually going to lack the diversity we need in today's really drastic changes in our challenging climate. I want to use every tool at our disposal. Something that has always kind of confused me is what is considered a native plant? Is it plants on this continent, the state, the region, in the state, or just in my backyard? What really is a native plant? Exactly. It could be so specific. As we know, some native plants like to be on the northeast side of a hill. I find my yellow lady slipper orchids only on the northeast sides of the little valleys in my woodlands. I didn't notice until our forestry specialist at UT pointed out that the northern red oaks are always on the northern side of the hill. They just may not like the warmth that the sun generates on the southern exposures. We can be very, very specific. Only certain soil types will support. Do we mean the county and this particular soil type? It can be so restricting that it's really sort of a slippery slope. When I think about what is native over time, how do we know that a bird didn't drop that seed flying over Louisiana, for example? And it took place here before anybody noticed that was in the state. And then it was discovered by some Tennessee botanists some decades later. And they assumed it's native because it's out in the wild and it's known to be in the southeast. So they're going to call it native to Tennessee. There's just so many moving parts to this. I laugh about the fact that some plants that would be considered native to Mexico, but not native to the United States, simply depends on where we drew a line on a map. With climate change, that native plant may be creeping further northward. And if it does that on its own, is it then considered native or is it invasive? Think about the migration patterns that come from like Mexico into the United States. Your example of dropping a seed, that's easily could be done. How do you prove what was native? This idea that we freeze a moment in time, it's when the first European set foot on the continent. That moment in time, everything that we saw here is native and everything that has arrived later is not. Yet we don't know when they arrived here. We know that some things arrived here across the land bridge from Asia when Beringia was a landmass that connected Alaska to Asia. That's where the Native Americans came from, right? Along with a lot of other plants and animals. And then they spread across the United States. Heck, think about this. The continent was split once by water, and then the water went away and it rejoined. So the things that were native to the east may mingle in the middle. Is that okay if they get put together by land but not by water? It's all sort of really confusing. Would you give me some examples of some plants that are not native to the continent that are supporting insects? Oh, gosh, bunches. I think one a lot of gardeners will be familiar with is a lot of people will plant fennel and parsley for the black swallowtail butterflies. Of course, those plants are not native to our continent. I'm certainly not going to tell people they shouldn't be planting those, right? Because that particular insect has benefited so much from us planting these non-native plants. I have to make a little bit of joke about how many people garden for butterflies because I have a little bit of a grudge about it. I know everybody gardens for butterflies because butterflies are so pretty, right? And as a girl who never got elected to anything in high school, no homecoming court, no cheerleader status. I'm sort of like, why don't we have people who garden for the homely pollinators? They're like, hey, let's garden for beetles. (laughs) But they are the cheerleaders, right? Yeah. I know that anything that's good for the butterflies is likely good for everything else. So I'm glad we have pretty cheerleaders, but I'm just a little (laughs) bit mad about it. Go a little bit further. One, I, I really challenge is this idea that monarchs have to have native milkweeds. Mm-hmm. 
because that's sort of been the poster child for it. it has to be native because who doesn't want to help that magnificent butterfly with its great migration story? Well, the truth is there are milkweed butterflies on every continent and there are milkweeds on every, well, not every continent, maybe not Antarctica, but on many continents. The milkweed caterpillars certainly do need a specific nutritional, it's a, it's a very specific molecule that they need within that plant. And that's the one that makes them resistant to birds. You know, birds eat it and they get sick and they won't eat them again. That molecule can be found in a lot of different plants in the milkweed family. The fact that it has to be native is just simply not true. I like to joke about if you put them in a blender and you have this green mass of milkweed nutrition, the monarch caterpillar could care less. It's like he'd take a sip and go, yeah, that's fine with me. Works for me. What other plants are in that family? Oh, my gosh. They've changed that whole family now, I think, to Apinaceae. And forgive my mispronunciation, probably, because, heck, I'm fifth generation Mississippian who just happens to be a Tennessean now. But either way, I'm going to butcher the language. Remember that we go all the way back, that we were all one continent. And let's also remember that our continent has been moving around at one time. The East Coast lay across the equator, right? So there's been many, many different plant palettes. If this milkweed family, the Apinaceae, once existed on this land mass before all the continents split up called Pangaea, and then they split and they started to look a little different because of the different climate they were exposed to, inherently at a molecular level, at a nutritional level, they're still very close kin. You might compare it to eating a goat as compared to a sheep or a deer. They're all ungulates, right? We have to think about that on the bigger level and realize that there's a bunch of plants that will work. One of my favorite plants for the monarch caterpillars is a South African annual. It may be perennial in warmer climates, but here we use it as an annual. And it is Gomphocarpus physocarpus. It used to be called Asclepius physocarpus, but you know how those taxonomists are. They mess with it. Really closely related. But the important part is that it has the right nutrition. I can grow a tall willowy plant taller than I am from a seed in just a couple of months. And I could sell a six pack of it for $3 to somebody. If they had native perennial milkweeds in their garden, what I've discovered is that some of those are not very easy to grow and that a lot of them are very susceptible to aphid damage. The ones that I have, there's not enough foliage there for the monarch caterpillars. Think about it. If you're a monarch mama, you're laying a whole bunch of eggs on one plant. All those babies are munching along and pretty soon they'll devour. As a child, we had milkweed growing all in our pastures on the farm in Mississippi where I grew up. And if the monarch caterpillars ate all the foliage off of one clump of milkweed, that was the old the Asclepius viridis, then they could just crawl a few feet and there would be another. That was not a problem then. But today, how are we going to have a pasture full of milkweed in the typical suburban landscape? We really can't. What I can do is plant a bunch of these fast-growing annuals that produce tons of foliage that can feed these caterpillars. I've watched over the years, many of them succeed. We've even had customers bring them to us because they had native milkweeds and all the caterpillars ate the foliage off and they were starving to death. They're like, oh my gosh, where can I get some more? And we're like, bring them over here. We've got plenty of this gomphocarpus. And by the way, that's a cool plant. If you're not familiar with it, you know, it has some naughty names. It's called family jewels plant. Does that give a hint of what the seed pod looks like? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sometimes called hairy balls plant, just to be frank, on milkweed. It's really cool. Little white flowers. I think Jason brought home the seed. Jason is our, by the way, I should mention, I worked at the experiment station in Jackson, Tennessee, where we had a large display garden. And our research horticulturist and garden curator there is Jason Reeves. 
Jason had interned at Longwood Gardens many years ago, and he brought the seed to us. And it's always planted in our display gardens, and we do sell it in our spring plant sales to the public and to our master gardeners. Can you take it over the southeast or where? It's an annual for our area, and it would probably, if you were in a tropical zone, be a perennial. There's another one. This is the one that really got me upset. This is why I got a reputation for, a quote, hating native plants. The tropical milkweed, Asclepius curasavica, are you aware of all the controversy about it? Now, why don't you explain it to me? It's one that grows quickly from seed, blooms all summer, and provides a lot of nectar and pollen for all pollinators. And the caterpillars will eat the foliage just fine. And again, it's a plant you grow cheap, fast, pretty, sell cheaply. But it was a, um, her name is, she was with the University of Georgia. And I'll think of her name in just a second. She did some research on the problems with tropical milkweed overwintering in the most southern zones. It will overwinter in frost-free zones. She discovered that this parasite that can build up in the monarch will do so. It will actually, if they overwinter on that particular tropical milkweed, that it can build up. It's called OE is the parasite name. And that could possibly cause those monarchs to be unable to continue their migration and to have weaker and sickened and even die butterflies and caterpillars. The whole point of that was where it overwinters. Now, the media seized on that, and I saw headlines just all over the country. I mean, big newspapers up north and magazines blazing with plan to save the monarch caterpillar backfires, well-meaning people are killing monarchs, et cetera, et cetera. So I called this young lady who did the research, and I asked her if that's what she intended to happen. And she said, absolutely not that she planted it in her own Georgia garden for the monarchs, and she did not understand how it got wrapped into all that. In fact, that a lot of that was conjecture. It hasn't been proven that it keeps them from traveling. There's a really, really good article now in the North American Butterfly Association. So NABA is called, if you do naba.com and type in tropical milkweed, you'll see that they have a big article about that called When Well-Meaning People Do Harm. And it's about attacking the tropical milkweed. Well, I thought, surely there's people who know this besides me. I'm not that smart. There are people who had to realize that they were, for some reason, trashing tropical milkweed, realized that they were choosing native plant dogma over monarchs. And that infuriated me. And I began to suspect motive. Why would you do that? If you're really for the butterflies, you must be, for some reason, on some sort of, I hate to use the word, but agenda. I began to study and investigate and think about it. And that's when I began to realize I had to speak up. I've been an activist all my life. I mean, since the Vietnam War, and that may tell you my age. But when I think something's wrong, I have to pick up and fight. That's actually one of the reasons I retired is to write a book about this that pushes back against the native purist movement. That's interesting because I always would think that native plant people and monarch or butterfly people would be running parallel with each other. You would think, because, of course, there's a lot of people who come together on honeybees. Honeybees, of course, are an invasive, exotic insect. And there's a lot of invasive, exotic insects that do harm. There are a lot of invasive exotics that have come here that do good. And we've come to agree that we need the honeybees at this day and age, which, honestly, if you go back to a time before we got here, obviously honeybees were not necessary. There's a whole lot of hoorah about We have to have the honeybees or we'll starve to death, basically. And I have to laugh because, of course, the people that were here before we arrived knew what they could eat. They knew all the native plants that they could eat. They knew the native animals. They moved around with the seasons. They knew what to eat. 
Well, when we came over, we didn't know what we could eat. So we brought our own foods from Europe. That is another whole aspect to think about this. You say it's wrong to bring plants over from other continents. But if you said, I'm going to have to go to Mars because there's no land left here on Earth for my people and they won't let me practice my religious freedom here for my people, which is why a lot of the Europeans came to North American continent, right? You would pack your plants and your animals if you were going to Mars because you don't know what there is to eat up there. So that's what these people did. They put the plants that they knew. They put the animals that they knew. They brought the honeybees that they knew. Although honeybees were actually brought over not so much for honey or even for pollination, but for the beeswax. Before electricity, everybody had to light their home with whale, sperm oil, or beeswax. And beeswax was considered to be the fine candles, the better lighting, the cleaner. That was the important thing. And your hives were so important that you actually left them in your wills to your generations beyond. Of course, they spread over the continent. Now we think of them as sort of necessary. What were some of the plants that the early settlers brought that were important to them? Almost everything you see in the grocery store these days is not native. Wheat, of course, is not native. And you think about the bread, potatoes, of course, we think Ireland, because I'm Irish. If somebody said, what's your native food? I might say Ireland, but that's not true. Potatoes actually came from South America. The only important native food that you're going to find in the grocery store is blueberries. North American blueberries are our only important native food. Now, some people will say, oh, no, 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 the corn squash bean, the three sisters that the Native Americans planted. And I will tell them that they actually came from South America. The Native Americans, once again, recognized a good thing when they saw it. And those particular crops traveled up through South and Central America to the North American continent. They did not originate here either. Maybe you'll find Jerusalem artichokes, which is actually the tuber of our native sunflower. The native sunflower, the Helianthus Jerusalem artichoke, is sometimes found in the grocery store, so that might be the only other thing you would find. People can ask themselves if they want to go 100% native, are they going to exclude their food crops? Are they going to say, well, I can't plant an apple tree in my yard? All apple came from Kazakhstan, bred across Eurasia. Even the so-called native crab apples, about four species to North America, now we could trace by DNA that it traveled all the way from Kazakhstan, across Asia, across Beringia, to the North American continent. And I'm going to propose that that is also true of a lot of these plants that we are slamming because we see so many of them. We see them on the roadsides and we go, oh, that terrible mimosa tree, because there's so many of them springing up on the roadsides. You know where they spring up? Where humans scar the earth. If you were allowed that to go back into natural succession, which, of course, is when the plants begin to creep in, the, the pioneer species, you mow a field, first it'll turn into weeds, and then sumac and blackberry, and probably down here some young loblollies, and then the hardwoods eventually take over and shade everything out that natural succession occurs unless you continually open up that land, which is what we do along highways. When I'm riding along the highway and I see fescue, which is terrible for ground birds and one of the reasons for the quail decline, all the way to a fence row, and there's a few mimosa trees blooming. Beyond that is a whole bunch of cotton, let's say, or soybean. What in that picture is providing for wildlife the most? And I would propose to you it's the mimosa trees. Why is that? Because they bloom and they provide lots of nectar and pollen for our butterflies, and they actually improve soil by adding nitrogen. The shade that they make is fairly light. Things can prosper under it. They're short live trees, as we knew growing up. Grandma planted one, and it didn't live long. It didn't matter. You had lots of babies coming up. But the babies only come up where we continue to scar the earth. 
when plants come in and hold ground where we scar the earth, let's think about that other probably even more precious resource and more difficult to replace, which is our soil. Come on, pioneer species, put down some roots, hold this soil, provide something for the wildlife. I don't give a hoot where you're from. Help us out here. And that's what's happening. But it's become very, I guess, in the plant world, it's a PC thing to say that because I see it a lot on the roadsides and it's not native, therefore it must be bad. And I say that we are not judging things on their merits. Just don't talk about it has to be bad because we see a lot of it and it isn't from here. Let's say, what is it providing? What are the, what's the good it's doing? That's what we do about the honeybee. We need to apply that thinking to plants. If you could design a highway planning, what would be your formula? Oh, goodness. That's probably far too complex. You think about where you are, and we do know that we can't allow trees to be along the highways, right? Because snowstorms, ice storms, windstorms would block traffic and probably could fall on people as well. We do have to maintain it as a mowed area. I would love to see more native grasses. I'm a huge fan of our blue stems. One down here we call the broom sedge, the virginicus, is a very beautiful plant in our wintertime. Part of this, I guess, is from being old. As I was growing up, milkweed was a bad thing. Broom sedge was a bad thing. So our county agents taught us how to kill it. So we would have better pasture for our dairy cows. I grew up on a dairy farm in North Mississippi. Now we're paying a whole lot of money to put these plants back. So I've seen this extension swing from let's kill all these weeds, let's kill all these insects, to now we're saying, how do we put them back? Now that we're having to pay, well, I think the last time I checked on little blue stem seed, it was $127 a pound, maybe, for a plant we used to kill. We were paid to kill it. We made somebody some money killing it. Now we're making somebody some money put it back. I feel like sometimes it is a case to follow the money. The whole kill the weed thing, if you think about it, the hen bit and the dandelions that are helping our insects and our birds and our lawns every year. We pay a whole lot of money to get rid of them, yet once my warm season turf grass, I have zoysia, begins to warm up and mow, it all looks the same anyway, and they're through with their thing. Why am I paying somebody to kill all of that? What benefits is the hen bed and the dandelions giving the ecosystem? A whole lot. They're very early bloomers. The bees are all over them, all the pollinating insects. If you walk around in a field of hen bit, Love to see the big sweeps of purple in these otherwise empty agricultural fields in March and April. Henbit is called henbit because the birds love to eat it. If you don't believe it, next time you're pulling up henbit, if you have chickens, watch the chickens eat it. And many, many times I've watched wild turkey out there eating henbit and chickweed. That's why it's called chickweed. Of course, there's more than one kind of chickweed. Chickweed and henbit, the two species that I see most common, were European introductions. And that brings up a whole nother thing because I eat them. Of course, they're edible and you can munch on them. I was up doing a talk up in Asheville, North Carolina, and one of the speakers was an ethnobotanist named David Kozo. And David Kozo's job was to keep the Cherokee Nation in touch with their plant heritage. He was showing slides of these things we consider weeds and we pull out of our gardens to plant the less nutritious, maybe spinach. After his talk, I went up to him and I said, David, that was really interesting. But some of those plants you were showing were not uh, native to the North American continent. They were European introductions when we got here. He said, yeah, Native Americans knew a good thing when they saw it. They quickly adapted to it and began to use it. So when you look at why a lot of these plants got here, we brought them over because they were useful. And then at some point, somebody somewhere decided they were a weed. And somebody somewhere is making a whole lot of money off convincing us they are weeds. 
I'm trying to get people to reconsider what is a weed and change your mindset. I think that's how we got this idea that lawns are bad. Manicured lawns are probably not very useful for wildlife, although I will contend that a lot of creatures prefer open. For example, bluebirds will not nest in brush. They have to have open lawn in order to nest. They don't want any brush around their nest. If you let the lawn go natural, you actually have more wildlife. There's more wildlife in suburbia today than there are in wild areas. It's because we have these patchworks of lawns and borders. I will tell you, a lawn itself is not bad. It's an HOA. Mm -hmm. The HOA that requires you to try to keep that lawn perfect. And I'm going to defend those people who want a perfect lawn, too. I'm going to say, if that's your thing, do it. But if you want wildlife, you might consider letting the weeds thrive. And then when you mow, it won't matter. It'll all look like a uniform surface anyway. Surround it with a lot of borders. You'll have lots of wildlife. Add some trees. What you want are several different layers and levels. I'm going to ask people not to maybe treat for grubs because so many birds do love grubs. We've all watched robins pulling up earthworms. Who's seen flickers with their heads buried in the lawn eating ants? The grubs are a good food for many, many birds. I'm just saying, let your lawn be natural. Mow it and, you know, don't treat it with anything. People think lawns are high maintenance. I put in my zoysia lawn when I built this house, and it was just raw red earth around me. Watered it, and then I fertilized it the first year, and I have never done that since. Mow it about once a month, once summer's here. I probably mow a whole lot less in July and September, and that's the easiest job I've got. Golly, trying to maintain my perennial borders and everything else, that's weed and trying to keep plants from crowding out each other. I want to get a rest. I go get on my zero-turn mower. Yes, I admit, that's bad as far as carbon footprint. And I take a break riding on that mower and mowing that lawn. That's the lowest maintenance part of my landscape. (laughs) Yeah, you need those distractions, right? It's either that or drive a fast car. Yes. I don't know. I never have gotten the fast car thing. (laughs) I just drive a zero-turn on my own lawn, but pull the throttle back and just let it roll. (laughs) I know. And it's so easy. You're sitting there with a breeze in your face. I'm like, yeah, man, it's a lot better than leaning over sweating, trying to keep that verbena from taking over that sedum. What are some of the common native plant myths? One that I hear a lot, and I I do a talk on this, of course, and it's called Facts and Fallacies About Native Plants. One of the facts that they put forth out there that I hear a lot is garden centers don't carry native plants. I've had women march up to me indignantly and say, why don't garden centers carry native plants? It's hard not to be rude. It really is. Craig, I want to say something like, obviously, you don't know a native plant if you're standing on one. Have you ever been in a garden center that didn't have black-eyed Susans or coneflowers or oak leaf hydrangea or dogwoods or red buds or a variety of oaks? or your shade trees, and you can go on and on and on. There are many, many, many native plants in our garden centers, and then people, but those are cultivars. Those are not good for insects. They seem to think there's some sort of horrible Frankenstein thing because they've been bred, and I like to think of them saying that as they're munching on a carrot. Now, why do I like to think of that? Because I think of that carrot being the highly bred, nutritious food that, oh my goodness, some terrible breeder started combining genes long ago to create something that's more nutritious, easier to grow, perhaps disease resistant, perhaps more drought tolerant, all these things so that we can easily go get a meal under our bellies instead of having to hunt and gather all day long and be sitting at a computer complaining about somebody breeding plants. I just have this little scenario in my head of what's going on there. 
Plant breeding has gone on forever, even before humans got involved. Humans did start selecting maybe the best seed once we began to garden from one year to the next. But, you know, animals did it before that. Plants manipulate us. We might like to think we manipulate plants, but the truth is plants invite us to spread their seed around, don't they, by making it fruit making a fruit that's sweet and tasty. Something will eat it, something will carry it. Acorns are carried by miles, sometimes by birds. Things eat fruit and drop the seeds around. This has been going on for a long time that they provide for us a mechanism to help make them reproduce. And I don't know if you ever read The Botany of Desire by Michael Pollan. No, I haven't. Oh, it's great read. you got to read that, Craig. Okay. He takes four plants and he talks about how they manipulated us to spread them around the world. It has been through nutrition. He uses the potato for that because the potato has been moved all around the world because it's such a good, quick source of caloric intake for us. Beauty talks about the tulip, how it bewitched us with its beauty. He talks about cannabis because of its ability to intoxicate people, that its seductive properties. And then he talks about the apple for its sweetness, that, you know, we crave things that are sweet and sugary talks about these plants that begin to get all over the country because they want it to be all over the country. Every creature's main motive, its drive, is to make babies. I mean, we walk around our garden. I do another talk called Sex in the Garden because people don't realize flowers are reproductive organs. The reasons the birds are calling, the reason the frogs are hollering, all that's about making babies. Everything's making babies. Develop that talk. My friend Jason Reeves said, you realize no matter what we ask you to talk about, you end up talking about sex. <laughs> and I said, because that's what gardens are. Yeah, Everything is baby making. I'm just reporting the facts. <laughs> okay. Let's bounce back to the myths and facts about native plants. Are native plants easier to grow? Myth or fact? That is a myth. Total myth. There are many native plants that are extremely difficult to grow. There are many native plants that are really easy to grow. There are exotic plants that are extremely difficult to grow, and there are many exotic plants that are extremely easy to grow. I give you forsythia. How many times have you driven past a yard where the house was long gone, and there she blooms still every spring in the yard by hands long dead? How about the old tulip magnolias, the deciduous magnolias that we see? There are many really good non-native plants that are long live. I think that whole myth got started because drought year, we're driving around the countryside and we're having to water the heck out of the plants in our own landscape, but everything out in the woods looks pretty good. Therefore, native plants must be more drought tolerant. And I say, "Mm -mm, I don't think you're seeing the whole picture. You're not looking at the soil because what have we done in our landscapes? We have destroyed the soil's natural structure by tilling, by adding, by building, by scraping, by planting. But if you look at a native soil that's been undisturbed, there are natural layers. I'm going to relate it back to soil. A lot of people like to talk about their bad clay soil, but clay is actually extremely good soil. It's got a lot of water moisture retention. It's got high ionic exchange. It's just when we mess it up. Over time, clay develops its own porosity. It has a natural tendency to aggregate in clumps. That's just a chemical reaction. You may remember enough about chemistry. I was terrible at chemistry in high school, but I do remember that certain molecules attracted each other in atoms and they would clump. So that's what happens. But when we pulverize it, then we have destroyed that. It becomes more powdery. That also makes channels from worms, cicadas, tree roots, and even from freezing and thawing, Over time, there are these big pillars of clay soil that are called peds. 
really cool things, big geometric structures that go down deep into the earth. But when we pulverize the soil on top, we create a powdery layer that seals together and then it won't drain because we've ruined it. Whereas if we would only improve from the top down like Mother Nature does by always adding another layer of decaying material, then those channels would stay, that porosity would stay. I always tell people, I said, if you think you have terrible clay soil, lay a hay bale on that soil for a year and then go pick it up. Tell me what you see underneath because you'll see crumbles, crumbly, burrows, channels, all these things that occur naturally if you'll let Mother Nature do the tilling for you and improve your soil for you. I say that's what's happening out in the woods is we have allowed the soil to retain its health and vigor and its natural propensity to hold moisture. We haven't created these hard pans. We haven't pulverized things. So if you plant your native plant in this pulverized soil, it's going to be a challenge for it. It certainly, it'll make it struggle as well. That's another very good point. That native plant may do great if you put it out in the native soil, but you put it into soil that we've messed with, unless you artificially apply water and its other needs. I think another reason that we see plants out in the wild doing better without water during these times is because, number one, we haven't pushed them along with too much nitrogen. Lush growth is certainly going to wilt faster and be more prone to desiccation than a plant growing along at its own natural pace. And while we're on that, another thing I want to mention is we were always taught coming along in school that we should fertilize with N, P, and K. But the truth is that we can put too much potassium and phosphorus on plants. That if we do crowd those roots with too much of that P and K, it cannot pick up other necessary nutrients. So we're actually crowding them out. So be sure you have your soil tested, and if you don't need the P and K, don't. A little bit of nitrogen is maybe all you want to add. I've got where I prefer very light applications of fertilizer, maybe once a year in spring. The rest of it, I really try to just add organic compost and let it break down over time and naturally feed that plant. In the long run, you're going to have a more drought-tolerant plant and a longer-lived, easier-to-care-for plant. Do you have another myth you'd like to bust? Yes, indeed. The one about cultivars are bad for insects. It just depends on the cultivar. I will agree that a plant that's bred to maybe be a double flower with all those beautiful little roughly petals could be bad for insects because it obstructs access to the pollen and the nectar that they need. But we have noticed in our own trials that sometimes when we're doing a whole bunch of a particular genus of plants, that the pollinators are specifically attracted to one of those cultivars. And now Mount Cuba Center that's devoted to native plants has started conducting trials, very specific trials to see which cultivars, and the one they just completed was on the comb flowers, the echinaceas, which are most visited by pollinators. And guess what? It was a cultivar that came out on top, not straight species. I want people to realize when we talk about cultivars that a lot of these are not bred. These are not humans in their manipulating genes. They're when some smart person's walking around among a bunch of seed-grown echinacea, for example, and they go, hey, that one's a little bit different color. That one's got more flowers. That one's flowering earlier or longer. These are natural things that occur in nature. They are seedling selections that somebody's simply picking out. They didn't manipulate it at all. They just saw it. So that's one thing we need to think about. And the other thing is, why is it bad if we're actually trying to create a little bit better plant? If we know this one grows a little bit further north and it's more cold hardy, or this one's a little more drought tolerant, maybe we can get that great color from that one and that drought tolerance from that other one. We take a little paintbrush or something and we exchange that pollen, which could have happened if a bee did it. 
for some reason, it's not okay if a human does it. If a bee does it, that's fine. I'm an apple snob, and I love everything that Honeycrisp was a parent of. I love Evercrisp, Ludacrisp. There's a ton of crisps out there. There's wild twist out now. Now, one of them was a natural cross. A bee took pollen from an unknown apple to a Honeycrisp, and that was apparently Honeycrisp is a really good mama. And that turned out to be this wonderful sugar bee is its name. But apparently, if I had done that as a human being, carried what pollen from one apple to the next pollen, that was somehow manipulating science, and it's some sort of a Frankenstein plant. I want people to realize there's nothing wrong with breeding. There's nothing wrong with cultivars. If you're looking for the best insect, which I am, actually, most of my choices in my landscape are guided by my wildlife. I love my wildlife, my hummingbirds, my insects. Did try them out, see which ones are the best, and buy more of those next year. But certainly can't say all cultivars are bad. Again, it's it's a case-by-case basis. You have to say some are not good, some are great, some are even better than straight species. Why do you think we paint with a broad brush rather than a fine-tip brush when it comes to native plants? We get zeroed in on one thought process. That's a great question. I absolutely love that question. And I feel like it's because, Craig, at some point we see things in black and white. We choose sides. And we don't really hear what other people are saying. We're not willing to hear other viewpoints. And of course, we see that happening in a lot of things. Certainly won't bring up politics in this conversation. I think part of it, too, is our education system in that we are not teaching like we should. If you just focus on one thing and become an expert on that alone, you don't see the bigger picture then you don't understand all the forces at play. How are we failing in that we don't know how many people don't understand how the planet works? That we've had several mass extinctions in the past on our planet, that our continents move around, time is not taught, that we don't understand the processes or the nutritional level of plants or the relationships. Instead, I think we're focused on how to help people make money. We're always looking for quick, easy answers rather than understanding the whole. If you've ever read Darwin's book, The Voyage of the Beagle, now he was a young guy and he certainly knew plants, but he also knew geology, geography, ornithology, entomology. He knew a whole lot about a whole different lot of things. So when he traveled around the world and he saw how different things were on different parts of the planet, he began to think about the influence of the planet on the living things. Most people don't have that range of experience. They don't have that range of understanding of looking at all the different factors. Do you remember the old fable, there's six blind men feeling an elephant? Yes, but why don't you share it with us? So the one feeling the tail thinks it's a rope and the one feeling the leg thinks it's a trunk. None of them are wrong. They all are feeling something that is very real to their experience, but they're not seeing the bigger picture. And I feel like that's something that is really important and somehow we need to bring to people in a more fun way. I don't feel like we teach enough about conservation. I think Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac should be required reading so that everybody understands that we are stewards of our environment. It's not about how much money we can make with our little blip. We're only above the surface of the earth for a blip. And we're not thinking about all the people behind us. We should be stewards for all the people and animals that come behind us and plants that come behind us. We're just a big part of that whole web. Somehow we're failing in that. We're focusing on, okay, we're going to teach these people how to make money. I'm starting to sound like one of those old people who money is the root of all evil. But when I start tracing it around, it always comes back to that, sadly. What do you think about we're always looking for quick, easy answers and rather than understanding the whole? 
Yeah, we are. You know, as an extension agent, I'm sure you get a lot of this too, Craig, in your line of work. People want you to tell them what the problem is. They want to go buy something at the easy close by store that'll fix it with one application. It needs to be cheap, needs to be easy to spell. That's it. You're done. Right. Fix the problem. It's a lot more complicated than that. It's complex. And I think I've come to appreciate and love the fact that we aren't always in charge. We like to think we are. We're told we were, but we aren't. Uh, Mother Nature slaps us around, does what she wants sometimes. We can kind of influence her and we can work with her, but we are really not in charge. I love that, actually. That doesn't bother me a bit. She needs to slap us around a little bit more sometimes, I think. I think we are responsible to think about trying to do right just because it's in our nature to do that. We should take care of everyone and everything we come into contact with. I'm a great fan of Jane Goodall. She has a book called Reasons for Hope, and that's one of the things I love about it. She says it's in our DNA to recognize the importance and our own need for the other species on the planet, and it's sort of innate that we want to care for them. Since I've read that, I see it everywhere. You know, I see little kids drawn to puppies and somebody finding a baby rabbit that they've got to take care of or being so excited about feeding that butterfly. It is innate in us. And I think especially in the gardening realm, I think uh, we are drawn to that because it does speak to something in our DNA. Do you believe that we are in a state of emergency concerning the decline of the insect world? So you'll remember that there was a time when you drove across a southern bottomland when you had to stop and clean your windshield. It was horrible. If you had Coca-Cola in the car, you'd be pouring Coca-Cola on the windshield and slapping those wipers back and forth trying to see because there was so much bug goop on your windshield. It was a whole big market. Remember those things you put on in front of your grill to supposedly deflect the insects up and over your windshield? Right. Blow them over the car rather than into the windshield. Now, when has it been like that? I see some insects on my windshield when I'm driving around, and I live way out in the country in West Tennessee, but it's very rare that I get enough of insect goop on my windshield that I even have to worry about it. It's not like it was. The problem is we are killing insects wholesale, and I think a whole lot of the problem is the way we farm these days. It's development, it's farming, it's pollution, and we're blaming the ornamental plants in our yard. We're saying, no, it's the forsythia in our yard that if we don't plant natives, that's why the insects are dying. No, it's a bigger picture. We're losing ground every day. We're losing, you know, who knows, hectares and hectares every day. We have to think about that. We have to have insects. We're going to die without them. E.L. Wilson calls them the little things that run the world, and that's absolutely true. A lot of people like to talk about pollinating of the food we eat, but I think, you know, is that all? Are you that small-minded? They make the dead gum air we breathe. They create the soil. They decompose all the dead critters in the world. Insects are out there working like mad for free, making babies, proliferating, and we need them. And if we do anything to continue their decline, we are in big trouble. Well, what is a solution? What could we do to help build the insect population? Part of it is to think about what will work. If you're in a hot urban environment, rather than insisting on it having to be native, just plant what will work. I know there's a lot of hoorah about how bad butterfly bush is for being invasive. You know, where we first began to notice it was invasive was in the bombed out rubble of London, where it would grow right in cracks of concrete and provide for pollinators. You think about last year, the summer temperatures in the Pacific Northwest were in the cities reaching 118 degrees. Mm -hmm. I'm telling somebody, no, you can't plant that. It has to be native. Plant whatever will provide some shade. Plant whatever will slow down this climate change. Uh, Plant what will work. Certainly, there are certain plants I wish I could wave a wand and make kudzu disappear or privet, probably my very most hated 
invasive exotic. The main thing is we got to get some cover out there. We got to feed our insects. We got to cool this climate down. The other thing I would say is, can we not learn to tolerate some weeds? Because I think it's just about how we see them. You could take a weedy field and it looks like a mass of weeds. And if you just mow some beautiful patterns in it, it looks so intentional. It's gorgeous. It's like this whole other life of, oh man, what a pretty, pretty landscape. But it's really weeds. All you did was design it a little bit. Leave those thickets where you can. Leave those weeds where you can. Don't cut stuff back. People ask me, can you come talk to our garden club about fall cleanup? And I go, no, here's what I would say. Don't do it. (laughs) We got to think about some toleration for a mess. I'll tell you, I'm a messy person. I'm always looking for excuses not to clean up. But I had to laugh about how many people move to the country, clean up their farm, get those fence rows spanking clean, and then go, what happened to the wildlife? We had to learn to tolerate a lot of that wildness and embrace it, not just tolerate it. Enjoy its beauty, whether it's native or not. Would you recommend some good, reliable sources to find solution? One I really have just recently acquired, and I'm enjoying the read, is Planning in a Post-Wild World. It talks about the benefits of some of the so-called exotics. I would also just consider the other side of researching. There's a a Million Trees was the original post. There's a blog going on that's trying to talk about the dangers of ripping out what's already established. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a, a garden or a landscape? Well, we did already mention the tolerance for weeds, make you a pretty weedy patch by just making it part of your pattern or design. But the other is, I'm not sure why so many people are obsessed about the view from the street. I know that some people do care. Maybe they want to be, you know, club of the month, garden club of the month or yard of the month for their area or something. I'm all about privacy. Now, I live out in the country, so I don't have to worry about it. But if somebody made me live in town, I am doing a wonderful, big, mixed, diverse screen planting so that nobody can see me out there working in my nightgown or the mess I leave when I decide I have to go in the house and eat and not going to get back out in the yard till the next day. So that is one thing I think I would do. And you kind of obscure this idea of property lines. You could pretend like you live in a larger property if you can't see where it stops and starts. The other thing I would say is just lots and lots of diversity. I know this is harder for the people that are designing the landscape to add more diversity because when you're making out your plant list and doing your shopping, instead of doing 20 of this and 15 of that, you're doing three of this and five of that and one of those. If you have all that diversity, then if something does fail, then the loss is not so evident. And the other thing is to have more for the wildlife. A good mix of plants means you have good predator-prey relationships. You're inviting wildlife in. As we take up more and more of their world, we need to provide for them. As mentioned earlier, we need them. The third thing would be, I think people don't think about designing for their own lifestyle. A landscape should make you happier. It should make life easier, whether it's getting from where you park into your house. It should be about being able to step right outside and grill if you want to. It could be about having more fruits and vegetables in your life or fresh herbs and using maybe less salt and butter. People don't realize the right landscape can even impact generations. Just a quick example. My mother inherited some money after a long time of taking care of all the old people in the family. We always laughed. It was the only farm crop that ever made any money was taking in all the old folks. She decides she wants a swimming pool. 
I said, Mama, I don't think we're swimming pool people. And of all weird things, she drew it up right in the middle of the old horse pasture, not near any of the homes. My family sort of has a compound down in Octibiah County, Mississippi, and homes are scattered around the farm. And she throws this out in the middle of the old horse pasture overlooking the pond, not near anybody's house. She said, it's not anybody's pool. It's the family pool. And she put a little kitchen in there and a bathroom and a pavilion and just a bunch of cheap tables. And you know what? For 30 years now, that's where we have all our showers, graduation parties, picnics, and most of all, our 4th of July celebration. We barbecue, we play water volleyball, and we sing patriotic songs, and we shoot fireworks over that pond. So there are kids in my family now that when 4th of July comes to their mind, it's at that thing, that pool, that pavilion, that pond that my mother drew up on a piece of graph paper. That's how the right landscape can impact generations, memories, right? It's not about what shrub am I going to put in next to my foundation. It's about your lifestyle and the lifestyle that wants to come after you. So I always help people kind of get that when they think about what do I want from my landscape is dream, dream, what would be your great desire? Mine here is about looking out and seeing the wild and having a place where dogs can swim in a pond and run in the woods and watch the changing of the seasons. I was lucky enough to have a career where I could do that. But even in your own little small bit of suburbia, there's things that you would love to do. Don't let fear render you frozen because you think, what if I do it wrong? What if I make a mistake? You know what? You can erase mistakes. We change our house. We change our dress style. You can change your landscape and you should change your landscape over time as your inspiration changes, as your needs wish, whatever. I'd tell people to just do it. What's your earliest garden memory? I'm a toddler standing in a chilly fall garden with my granddaddy, who was a veterinarian, as we all called him Doc. And he's peeling a cold turnip with his pocket knife and cut me off little bites that are crisp and sweet and crunchy. And I'm just thinking, wow, that's good. <laughs> Why did you decide to pursue a life in horticulture? I had saved just enough brain cells from my party years to realize that what I really liked was being outdoors. I was always curious about plants and animals and always brought things home in my pocket and loved trees. Decided I'd go back to school in my 30s and I took plant materials and it was like finding water. I didn't know I was that thirsty. It was easy because I loved it. And the next thing I knew that offered me an assistantship to teach plant materials and pursue graduate degrees. And from there, people would say, would you come work for me? And I would say, I guess so. What will you pay me? <laughs> I've told that to so many young people. If you pursue what you really love, then it's once you become an expert on something, people seek you out and offer you money, good money. That's true. Very true. Do you have a funny plant or garden story? The one that I always get tickled about, it's really not about the actual garden, but it's about the horticulture career thing. Like I said, I went back to school when I was had enough brain cells just barely to make it, but I did well. Just as I was finishing my bachelor's, the department head called me in and he said, we have too many students signed up for plant materials next semester and some of them need it to graduate. Would you consider staying on with a teaching assistantship and pursue graduate degrees because Dr. Estes thinks you're capable of teaching plant materials? And I said, really? He said that about me? I was so excited. I leaned back. I was just smiling ear to ear. And, and Dr. Mullenick said, never do that again. And I said, what? And he said, when somebody offers you a job, you cross your arms and you say, what does it pay? And I said, yes, sir. And that's worked for me ever since, Craig. People want me to come for a job. I think, what would it take for me to leave this job? And I named my price. And I'm always kind of shocked when they meet it. Like, maybe I should have asked for more. <laughs> Then this one other little part of that story was he said, but you're going to have to start wearing a bra. 
And I said, Dr. Mullinix, I wear one. He said, you need to get a better one. <laughs> that was kind of funny. But yeah, I love that job. And of course, teaching was, I think, the very best education of learning my plants down to the bone. In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? There was a man named Plato Tuliatis. Rest in peace. He had a big, fabulous nursery. He was actually one of the founders of the Kulawi Native Plant Conferences they used to have back in all the wild beginnings of all that. He wasn't a purist, but he loved native plants. Plato was a big, tall guy for somebody of Greek heritage, and he had a place called Trees by Tuliatis. It was about 14 acres in South Memphis, and it was just fabulous with all sorts of different plant groups. He was a great birder. He was a great philosopher. He said things that were just so intelligent and so logical. Here's an example. He said, if people really want a low-maintenance garden, then they need to have a woodland garden because the South wants to be woods. If you plow up a field and come back in 50 years, what will you find? Find woods. Yeah. Of course, woods still need some editing, but at least you're editing in the shade, right? Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. How'd you become a garden communicator? I have always liked to entertain. I come from a line of people who like to make people laugh. I'm one of seven kids, and my daddy was funny. He's gone, but he, he said he married Mama because she was an easy laugher. <laughs> well, we've joked about the seven of us that if there's a podium, we'll fight over it. There'll be seven Reese's elbowing each other out of the way trying to get to the microphone. <laughs> I don't know why that is. Some people are really afraid to talk in front of groups. Yeah. But I found it very energizing, and there's a good response. It was really hard on me during COVID trying to do it on Zoom because I see people's faces light up, and they nod, and they smile, and they laugh. It's a fabulous way to communicate. I don't think that I'm some authority figure, though. I just want to clear that up. I feel like I'm a channel that all these people who came before me poured all that information into me, and I'm pouring it on out to the ones around me. That makes me feel very comfortable behind the podium because I don't want people to see me as an authority figure. I'm a country girl with a big mouth who's been lucky enough to run into a lot of smart people in my lifetime. What's the title of your book going to be? A couple. One is to fight back against the native movement, and it may be facts and fallacies about native plants. So usually I come up with something a little bit wilder than that. But the one that really is in me is how in the world did I pull this off? is about how I managed to get 117 acres and a house when exactly half my life ago, I was fired from a lunchtime waitress job. Wow. Somehow in 35 years, I went back to school, got the degrees, got a career, ended up with this piece of property. And it was all about me being a little girl whose mama said, you cannot bring home any more stray dogs. And I said, I hate you. One day I'm going to have a house in the country and I can bring home all the dogs I want to. And so when I finally got out of my partying years, I thought, well, remember who you were. You wanted to have that place in the country. You love plants. You love outdoors. Why don't you start figuring out how to go about this? One foot in front of the other. I still can't believe I pulled it off. But the book, I kind of want it to start where you just bought a house and you find this old journal in there and you lift it. And it says, if you're reading this, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to tell you about my house because I did design it thinking about Plato with a compass in my hand because I saw Plato help somebody one time decide where to put a house. And he talked about where the light would be in the morning and in the afternoon and the views. And I laid all that out. It was him that told me kind of how to do it. And I hope when they look out there and they go, man, isn't that light nice, the way it angles across that pond and backlights the plant on the deck? I want that book to say, that was on purpose. I did that. Or, hey, it's April 10th. You need to go look for the yellow lady slipper orchid. And here are the GPS coordinates. And here's where it is across the creek. Here's a picture of it. 
as I get older, I always think about how much time I have left. And I always think about the people that will come after me, design this house. And I kept thinking about who will live here after I'm gone. I hope they knew something about it being very special that I found a good country builder and we kind of made it up as we went along and had a blast doing it. And it's been the best thing I ever did for myself. I'd like for you to complete this statement. And in my garden, I have weeds and weeds and more weeds. If you see pictures of my garden on my Facebook page, you'll see that they're very carefully framed out so that you don't see the weeds. Or I'll take a picture of something just after I weeded it. I'm a huge fan of collecting new plants. I plant way too many things, but weeding is my bane, as it is for most of us, I suppose. And I'm getting older where I can't do quite as much hard work, especially in the heat of the day. Maybe one day I'll get it under control and maybe I just won't. Maybe I'll just say, you know what, not going to get done. I'm just going to plant more stuff and let it fight with the weeds and see what wins. What have you learned from your garden this last year? I have learned that parts of it are wetter than I suspected, that certain plants that should have lived didn't and that still going to continue to try out new things, but that I'm happier and happier when I go back and find the older things that still work, that are maybe now not as snazzy and not as easy to find anymore, but are great plants. I love just old straight Chinese abelia. That's a great plant. Why do we have to have all these modern variegated ones and little dumpy ones, the ones that are shaped like cow patties and lozenges? Give me that big old dude that looks like fireworks. I love him. What is your favorite plant in your garden this week? There's a columbine that I think originally we bought as woodside gold. And it's got a cobalt blue flower. But these are seedlings off the one at work. It would scatter out little golden seedlings all in the mulch took some seed home and scattered them around and they come variegated or golden or sometimes solid green, different shades of blue and purple, and some are double. The gold and purple combination is always such a beautiful, beautiful thing that I really love them. And they do have good looking foliage for weeks and weeks after that. So that one probably is this week's highlight. What plant is on the top of your wish list? I would say that on the top of my list would be a hardy form of an orange flowered osmanthus. I've been seeking some out and trialing them. have lost a couple. So far, a couple are holding out, but I'm trying to find one that's really going to hold up. Do you have another plant? I do. I'm collecting more and more viburnums. I really love yellow-fruited form of viburnum called Michael Dodge. That's one I really want to seek out. It's got great fall color. They're really more orangey than yellow. What thoughts would you like to leave us with? I think that when people garden, a lot of times I'm a plant nut and I love collecting new plants and I love all the beauty that I see. But I also think that the more important aspect is that it gets us back in touch with the bigger picture. Seeing the cycles, we're watching things die. We realize that from decay comes life. We realize how fast we're whirling around the planet. It's like we could just engage so much more out there. I would like for everybody to think about trying to spend more time away from the computer and off their cell phone and out there and just really listening, letting themselves be part of that big cycle and realizing where you stand on the planet. Carol, tell us how people may connect with you. People want to contact me. You could get my email address by Google. My old UT email address, by the way, is still working. Or you can direct message me, if you like, on my Facebook page. This has been Episode 57, Dangers Posed by the Native Purist Movement with Carol Reese. Thank you, Carol. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. 
please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.